nothing that I do, no matter how beautiful of a job I do, is going to help you save your marriage, get a job, land the girl or guy of your dreams, you know, totally change your life. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Put the Lotion in the Basket. I'm Patrick. I'm Anna. And we did say last time that we would be in the same room together for the next episode, and that was a barefaced lie. I am alone in my kitchen, and you, Anna, are alone, I think, in your closet at home. Mm-hmm. I'm in my closet, so that yeah, I don't that's echo. Not a metaphor for anything. Um, <laughs> you are actually in a closet. I am physically in a closet. Yes. We just had another one of those weeks and I was out of town in New York City, my hometown until late last night. So now we're doing this after work on a Monday night. But you know what? It's just what it takes to bring you guys put the lotion in the basket. Yes, exactly. We will stop at nothing to um, get this content out. Now, this week's episode is slightly different. Anna's gone back to her roots as an investigative journalist and has tracked down someone very important on the East Coast. Anna, tell us more. Yes. So I was in New York for a quick 72-hour trip for some family stuff, but I snuck in something for the podcast while I was there. I went to see one of the most prominent plastic surgeons on the Upper East Side. Ooh. Mm-hmm. What did you have done? <laughs> Nothing, unfortunately, but we did a long interview, which I have brought you today. It is with Dr. Lara Devkin, a board-certified plastic surgeon, and she's also the founder and CEO of Dr. Lara Devkin Scientific Beauty, which is a luxury medical-grade skincare line. Fabulous. I think it's a really interesting conversation, and she also sent me off with some products, but I think it'll be more interesting to listen to the conversation first and then hear what she says about the products and when we come back i will tell you which ones i got and what i think of them amazing let's do it here it is can you just introduce yourself with your name and what you do hi i'm dr lara devkin i'm a board certified plastic surgeon in new york city and i'm also the founder and ceo of dr lara devkin scientific beauty which is a luxury medical grade skincare line that is direct to consumer as well as sold in major retailers domestically and internationally. Well, this is kind of a goofy question to start off with, but do people get self-conscious around you just in social situations? Because I, I am a little bit, and I wonder, do you in regular situations, are you able to turn off your plastic surgeon brain and interact with people? Or do you look at their faces and think, hmm, you could use this or that? It's funny you say that. People always ask me that question at cocktail parties. Like, are you always working? Or like, people will, my friends will apologize to me about how they're late on their Botox or they didn't touch up their hair color. And I'll be like, guys, don't worry. I'm off the clock. It's okay. I mean, there's an extent to which you never totally turn off your brain. Like if you're an architect and you walk down and the streets of a new city you'll be looking at the bricks and mortar and you'll be looking at the formation of the columns of the buildings and so I see what the brain understands and so I do take in a lot of information all the time on the subway walking down the streets at parties but I like to think that I'm a nice normal person and I'm not dissecting everybody's faces all the time 
So it's kind of just running in the background a little bit. Yeah, more or less. Sort of like if you're into politics, you're always kind of thinking about the news. A little scary, but that's okay. <laughs> um, well, why did you get into this field of medicine? I grew up, um, as you know, in Southern California, down the street from the old Getty Museum, and always, from a very young age, took art classes and was really interested in the human form and the beauty of the face, the body, you know, in the against the backdrop of those Etruscan antiquities, that was really something. But I grew up actually as a classically trained artist. And as I got older, I became really interested in ways that that manifested in real life and the intersection between art and anatomy. And in college and medical school, I found myself gravitating towards surgical fields. And plastic surgery, plastic and reconstructive surgery, is really the perfect blend of art and anatomy. It's an extremely broad field that allows me to treat patients of all ages, from very young to very old, all genders, all types of situations, from cosmetic to reconstructive, all types of emotional situations, all parts of the body physically, and it's an extremely broad field where I can help people over the course of short periods of time or long periods of time. So I got into it because of that intersection between art and anatomy, but I like the depth and breadth of it too. What kind of art are you trained in? Painting and sculpture. It's really light and shadows. And I guess you hear people say that in all types of fields, but in real life, when you look at somebody's face or body, the visual impact that you see when you think about attractiveness is how the light and shadows are hitting somebody's face. I have not thought of it that way before, but that makes sense. And do you have an overarching philosophy? And I mean, I'm focused on the cosmetic side of things because we're a skincare podcast. So in terms of that side, do you have an overarching philosophy in terms of how you approach the practice like what would it be if you're if you had to generalize you know why would a patient come to you versus another plastic surgeon on the upper east side yeah this is the neighborhood of plastic surgeons (laughs) you've got that right what i really focus on in my practice is meticulousness and beauty in fine details and a while ago i started using that as an instagram hashtag beauty is in the details and when I'm thinking about my work, what I'm really trying to achieve is naturalness and the preservation of identity while I'm achieving an optimization of facial and body aesthetics. So I think that there's this very delicate balance between improving the way somebody looks and preserving that gestalt feeling of what looks good and what looks normal. And I'm sure you've seen examples of the uncanny valley when you go into a restaurant and either New York or LA or really anywhere in the world at this point and somebody looks good but not exactly normal and this feeling of an overfilled cheek or an overpuffed lip or tension on the skin in the region of the chest or an exaggerated waist to hip ratio and some of these proportions that remind us of an almost cartoonish cartoonish or AI generated feeling that 
harkens toward a slight feeling of revulsion. And that's just something that I've always disliked about plastic surgery and I feel gives my field a bad name because plastic surgery is actually an extremely subtle and academic field that when done well has a lot of restraint and that's what I focus on. I really like to bring an understated elegance to everything that I do and have naturalness and modern technology. So I'm making the smallest incisions, using the most modern techniques, and still trying to preserve identity by looking at very subtle details in, in all things. Well, I definitely have noticed absolutely living in LA, even visiting New York, people sometimes you come across that clearly have had work done or sometimes it looks kind of overboard. And I do wonder when someone initially comes to you, is it part of your job at all to sort of gauge where they're coming from? Like, I think these procedures can be really confidence boosting, but also sometimes people seek them out for less healthy reasons, you know, to fix other things in their lives or they maybe go overboard or do you have any radar for that? And is that part of the job or do you just take at face value what they want? Yeah, absolutely. There is a high percentage of body dysmorphia in plastic surgery and even in non-plastic surgery related fields. I would say that in the literature, it's estimated that 10 to 20% of plastic surgery interested patients have an extent of body dysmorphia in their motivations. And so part of what I do in a consultation process is try to assess somebody's physical and mental wellness for having a procedure because nothing that I do, no matter how beautiful of a job I do, is going to help you save your marriage, get a job, land the girl or guy of your dreams, you know, totally change your life. And the best case scenario is me helping somebody who's generally happy and generally well-adjusted, who has a discrete set of physical concerns that are well-addressed with some discrete interventions on my part. And there's realistic expectations, I'm managing patient expectations, they're mediating their concerns by existing firmly in reality and you know it's a it's a very reasonable situation when people come in and they want not medicine but rather a miracle then i know that it's going to go off of the rails and i know that that's not going to be a good situation and there are so many resources out there and i mean it in the kindest possible way but sometimes the best decision to make is the decision not to operate because a scalpel can't cure all problems. It can cure only some of them. And that decision-making and aesthetic judgment is one of the most important characteristics that a plastic surgeon can have. And how do you navigate those conversations? Have you ever had to talk someone out of a procedure or do a big expectation management conversation? Yes, that's a daily part of my job. Every single day in my job, I discuss not having some procedures with some patients. And, you know, when somebody who loves what they do, like I do, and who earns a living doing work, tells you this is not in your best interest, you should listen to them. Because that comes from a place of, you know, on some fundamental level, it's not in my interest to not offer someone work. But So if I'm saying that it's not a good idea or it's not going to give you what you think you want or what you think you're hoping for, then, you know, that really means something. And I think that's something that people should hold true and take, take into consideration. And I would imagine there's also just the every patient of yours in a way as a walking advertisement for what you do. 
I mean, a lot of people don't walk around disclosing if they've had work done, but also I would imagine for practical reasons too, it wouldn't be in your best interest to do something that you know is going to look bizarre or over the top or overdone that's not in line with your aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. And every person is a little mini brand ambassador, even if they're extremely private. I've, I've had the opportunity to take care of people who are, you know, well-regarded, prominent public figures and um, people who don't feel comfortable disclosing any of their procedures, whether it's in a more private setting or a more public facing setting and that's obviously up to their personal discretion but I want my work to be able to give everyone the opportunity to make that decision on their own and not feel like they have to lead with their plastic surgery they can lead with whatever they want yeah clearly I would love names but I know you can't do that I am curious this is purely just my own very casual observations mostly from social media so you can tell me if this is way off base but when I look at plastic surgeons who have big social media followings, as you do, but, you know, on Instagram, it seems that it's a lot of men. And I do see sometimes the aesthetic is like a little bit in your face. And yours is, seems to stand out in that way, that both in the fact that you're a woman and you seem to have this more subtle aesthetic. I grew up in L.A. in the 80s and 90s. And so I very much had this impression when I was a kid that was so negative about plastic surgery. I would have absolutely never thought as a little kid that I would become a plastic surgeon because I had that exact same feeling that probably everybody has when they're scrolling their social feeds, that it's, you know, huge breasts and ostentatious displays of conspicuous consumption and fast, shiny cars and Beverly Hills mansions and like gigantic overfilled lips. And it's just gross. And I, don't understand exactly why that is what is put into the world, but um, I do think that it's um, it doesn't have to be that way. I think that there is a very interesting Pygmalion complex type of feeling that exists currently in plastic surgery where 90% of plastic surgeons are men, but 90% of plastic surgery patients are women. And there is this weird feeling even I had when I was first entering the field and interested in it as an academic field that um, was I going to be comfortable because it felt like you know men creating their ideal woman. And uh, I didn't want a part of that narrative either as a woman or as a surgeon I felt that that was not my vibe or my aesthetic or kind of what I was looking for um, but you know the reason that I think I've been able to achieve some degree of success in this field is because there are a lot of people who don't like that and a lot of people who want subtle, understated, high quality work that doesn't speak to that. But one thing that I do think is powerful about social media is that plastic surgery is an extremely visual field and by simply putting your work into the world you can show people examples of what you do and maybe it's not for everybody but it's almost like finding your perfect mate when you're trying to uh, meet someone and if you want to get married like find your perfect spouse you know you don't have to appeal to everybody you just have to appeal to the right people or the right person and so um, in that way there is a huge selection bias but you can you can put your work into the world and people who think that that is for them will like it 
Yeah. Well, do you, um, I know you do many things and, you know, deal with many parts of the body as a plastic surgeon, but since we're a skincare podcast, we are very focused on the face and the neck. So in terms of that region, do you have favorite procedures for people that come in just wanting to look a little better, look a little boosted, not dramatically different, but just want, you know, a subtle change? Non-surgically, I love looking at the face and doing a facial analysis with my patients and kind of honing into a bespoke and customized approach. And so I coined this term facial optimization, which has since been widely co-opted, but refers to this concept of many tiny millimeter level changes that can be made all over the face. But that could be something like, you know, using neuromodulator, aka Botox, to achieve a little bit greater skin quality, smoothness, symmetry of the eyebrows. It could mean balancing the profile with non-surgical rhinoplasty and chin augmentation. It could mean lifting the mid-face and jowl with cheekbone and jawline augmentation, improving vertical height of the lip with lip augmentation. And with um, augmentation, that's fillers usually? Uh, yeah, that's the use of injectable filler. Um, and then surgically, when someone has more than a centimeter of pinchable laxity in the neck, the jowl, or the mid-face, or basically any time you think about subtracting, um, you want to think about the concept of surgery. So my favorite surgical procedures to perform are eyelid surgery. I just love how beautiful and delicate and fine that is. And, and this, yeah, that's sort of my, uh, my zip stitch. That's kind of my signature eyelid surgery closure maneuver that leaves a very beautiful and seamless scar without railroad track scarring. Um, and um, face and neck lift. And um, with these approaches, we can lift and restore the position of the deep structural fat pads and muscle layers of the tissues that have descended. So you can avoid some of those 1990s era looks where it's like the windswept, taut, slightly strange looking face with the joker smile and the really shiny face, um, but instead keep a little bit of normalness. and. I think with everything that I'm talking about, it sort of harkens back to that question you were asking me earlier where it's a very delicate balance and sometimes you need to preserve minor imperfections in the interest of global facial beauty and harmony. So that's what I'm thinking about in the background for all of these things. And so with the facelifts nowadays, nowadays or facelifts, necklifts, it's it sounds like you have more, there's more flexibility now. Is that because technology has changed? I think mm -hmm. that our thinking about it has changed. I don't think that it's technology necessarily. I think there are very few board certified, well-trained plastic surgeons that are not physically capable of doing all of the maneuvers for any of these procedures. I think it's more the aesthetic judgment involved. Like I think, you know, Monet and Picasso could have made the same paintings, right? It's just the aesthetic judgment and the vibe and the desire. And what they think looks good is totally different. And so people have their own set of biases and their own ideas about life. And there's a way in which the classical training to be a surgeon in the United States of America means that you're going through pre-med, medical school, residency, fellowship, all of this stuff, these training pathways, and you're a well-trained person who knows anatomy and physiology and all of that stuff. You know how to do the moves. And then 
you establish yourself and you decide what your aesthetic is and what looks good. And there's obviously variability. We're capable of delivering unique, bespoke, customized answers to each different patient. But I think I can look at people's faces and in a specific way understand the surgeon who I think did that work. If I'm in a certain restaurant in New York City, especially, I can understand, uh, I, can, I can look at something and I can, I can look at work and I can, I can make a guess about like, oh, that, that's what that incision looks like or that's what that, you know, um, malar fat pad looks like or that's what that autologous fat grafting looks like and people have a vibe. Sure, I love that. There should be a phone app or something where you can scan it across an Upper East Side restaurant and the names of the plastic surgeons. It'll be like, hmm, like that. The good ones would be question mark. Um, And are there any procedures you absolutely won't do? Is there anything that's like popular now that you just think is not a good idea? Yes. Several years ago, probably five years ago, I stopped completely doing a very, very popular and lucrative procedure. Uh, called the Brazilian butt lift or autologous fat grafting to the buttocks. And this is a procedure that was made really popular in the 2010s to 2020s era um, where fat is liposuctioned from different regions of the body, sterilely prepared and reinjected into the buttocks to create more of an hourglass shape. And, you know, you can think of a lot of people who have a look like that where they have a um, more of a proportion and a fuller figured buttock. The reason I stopped doing this procedure is because in an analysis of the data, it's a very dangerous procedure. So the mortality rate for BBL is one in 3,000, according to a large published series. And many series have since been published, and a lot of plastic surgeons are working on safety techniques. Um, Some people are reporting that it's becoming safer. Um, But overall, I think that that's an extremely high risk. The reason for this is that there are large vessels in the area, and it can contribute to risk for pulmonary embolus, which can be a very catastrophic and fatal event. So there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of research in this area. But at the present time, I think that for an elective cosmetic procedure that, let's face it, we don't need this on some level. We also have alternatives like non-surgical buttock augmentation with poly-L-lactic acid, which is also known as Sculptra. We, we have other things that we can do. It's optional and voluntary. One in 3,000 to me is extremely high, like bordering on cardiac surgery level risks. That's, that's a no for me. It's not a procedure that I would do myself and not a procedure that I would have a friend or family member do. And so then when I have that feeling, that's my gut check for if I should do this for my patients. And so that's when I stopped doing the procedure. Yeah, that is a scary statistic for something cosmetic and elective. Do you do any procedures yourself? And do can you perform any of them on yourself or do you have to go to somebody else? Yes. No, you can ask. Um, yes, I do. I like. I think it's very important to practice what you preach. And um, kind of, me- kind of back to what I was just saying. I think it wouldn't be authentic if I didn't do for myself what I thought was good for my patients. So I maintain judicious injectables for myself um, quarterly. So about every three to four months. Um, I do um, gold microinfusion microneedling. Um, 
three or four times a year. I do erbium laser resurfacing twice a year. Um, in terms of specifics, I, you know, I like very light dose Botox in my upper face and very high dose Botox in my neck and my platysmal bands, um, and then really judicious injectables um, fillers? to fillers mm -hmm. to um, maintain bone structure for like cheekbone, jawline, tear trough. Um, I think that without those, I'd probably look 10 years older than I do. Um, and then I religiously use my own skincare line. Um, in terms of products, I can talk about that in a minute um, since you wanted to go into that in a second. But um, I do um, my own procedures um, on myself, which is wow. I have to be in the right frame of mind. But uh, that's something that has always been uh, relatively easy for me because I have good spatial three-dimensional anatomy. Wow. I'm surprised that you do them on yourself. That, that was not the answer I was expecting. That's pretty intense. But, um, but that's good. You trust yourself. And I would imagine that people, you know, coming to you probably look at you and make some judgments about the work you might do because you are probably your own advertisement. And sitting across from you right now, yeah, you look, if I did not know you, did not know what you did, I wouldn't think that you've had any procedures done. Um, so the skincare line, why did you decide to move into starting a skincare line? It seems like you have a pretty successful practice here and that's such a crowded field. So what did you feel like you had to offer in that space? Yeah, I think that my medical and surgical practice is split half surgical and half non-surgical. And what I try to offer my patients is a fully vertically integrated approach because I think one of the reasons that you were saying that a lot of other plastic surgeons have such overdone work is because if all you have is a hammer, then everything you see is a nail. And people do too much of the things that they have in their armamentarium because they're unwilling to let go. And you know, then people will start pulling faces too tight and doing too much fat grafting because they're unwilling to venture into neuromodulators or injectable fillers or suture suspensions or lasers, microneedling and so forth. And so medical grade skincare is extremely important. As, as Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. And those little daily habits are what pave the way for the texture and turgor of the skin that then creates the outcomes that we're maintaining in the operating room or the procedure room. So I found that I was advising my patients to go on this wild goose chase all over town to get something from here and something from there and uh, that I was trying to get pharmacies to custom formulate things for me and out of that I created the skincare line and I started with a couple of SKUs that were the most important for my patients and in 2020 we launched um, uh, to more widespread retail and formally launched the e-commerce brand and um, we're currently retailing in a number of uh, major retailers including uh, Net-A-Porter, Violet Grey, Moda Operandi, Saks, Sephora, we're launching at Nordstrom, we're at Revolve, Essence, Shopbop, the Webster, uh, we're moving into Mecca in Australia and New Zealand, and we're doing some really cool partnerships with Equinox, Equinox Hotel, Four Seasons Miami Brickle, the Mayborn Hotel Group in London, um, and really thinking about 
the way people integrate their daily routines and a little bit of the magic of my medical and surgical practice into the privacy of people's bathroom mirrors. And I, I think although it's a very crowded space, a lot of the crowding in the space is not from authority, it's from influence. And I think that there is a difference between influence and authority. And this is my actual real day job and my actual real academic expertise. And so I, I do think that I have something to offer here. Yeah. And so if somebody was going to, um, I've looked at the line and it's not the most wildly expensive one. Like it's not, you know, the SkinCeuticals, $200 serums, et cetera, but it's not low price point either. You know, like some of these other brands like Apollo's Choice or something, it's kind of in the middle, probably an investment for a lot of people. So if there was one sort of starter product, if somebody was like, okay, I'm going to try one thing and see maybe, and then I'll buy some more, what would you point them to? Our hyaluronic serum is really incredible, um, the Dr. Lara Devkin hyaluronic serum. I know that there are many hyaluronics out there, and some of them are very, very inexpensive, but they're not all created equally. And so the reason that I really like this product is because it's a mixed molecular weight hyaluronic. So it has small fragments that can penetrate into your dermis and also large fragments that can rest on top. So that not only allows you to build collagen from inside your skin, but the large fragments rest on top to improve barrier protection and give you a little glass skin look. It's also niacinamide fortified. So you get antioxidant protection from B vitamin derivatives. And in addition to that, one thing that's not disclosed ever on product labeling is the percentage of hyaluronic serum in a product. So you can legally call something a hyaluronic serum and it can have like one little speck. It's sort of like how, you know, ketchup is allowed to legally have, you know, three little parasites in it or whatever. I mean, if you're a ketchup company, please don't get mad at me. I am just freestyling here. The... Hyaluronic serum concentration is very high. So this is a product that has an extremely high loyalty rate and has been really amazing for us. So when people try it, they continue to use it. And then the other thing I would say, I know you said just one, mm -hmm. but this is a totally different category, but our Platinum Long Lash, which is an eyelash serum, is a really amazing product because it harnesses the power of phytopeptides or plant-based proteins as well as provitamin B5 derivatives to create a nourishing environment to support eyelash growth. And it does take some time for it to work, but in our clinical trials, it has increased eyelash length um, between 10 and 20% for most users. And it's become really popular. It's, it's in the top five to six global eyelash brands, depending on the reports that we're looking at. And that has happened in a very short period of time. So for people who are thinking about a lash serum, Platinum Long Lash is a really amazing one to try. Well, just finally, last thing, I'm, and I'm just sort of circling back to some of the broader, more philosophical questions we started with. Is there anything you do in your own personal life to balance out your professional life and frankly not go down a rabbit hole yourself? I don't know if that's a concern for you, but I find that even just doing this podcast, right? I'm more immersed in this world suddenly. You know, it started as a I'm I'm interested in skincare. I like, you know, the ritual of trying new products and all that. But ever since we started doing this podcast, you know, the more I think about this, the more easy it would be for me to really slip down a rabbit hole of like, oh, I could do this and I could do that and I don't know, is there anything that you just do specifically in your personal life to like put your whole professional life in perspective and keep it there? 
That's a great question. I mean, I think my patients, my family, my kids, my parents, my husband, reading the newspaper every day, I think, I don't know what it is about me. Maybe it's my academic background. Maybe it's being the child of immigrants. Maybe it's being interested in global health. We, it's, it's a little off topic, so we didn't mm-hmm. get into it, but um, I was an NIH T32 global um, health scholar and interested in clinical outcomes research and surgery outcomes, and I've lectured, observed, and taught on five continents. Um, so I've never had the hedonic treadmill problem. I'm like wearing clothes literally that I've had since my post-college days. So they're probably 15 or 20 years old. And even though we're speaking now from the heart of the Upper East Side on Park Avenue, um, I just have never felt that desire to keep acquiring lots of stuff or keep injecting tons of stuff in my face or keep getting bigger and bigger lips or keep needing to look younger and younger. I don't know. I think every day about making my patients happy and um, trying to give back. Um, and I started my the cosmetic aspect of my medical practice um, with the idea of being able to um, also ultimately want to create a foundation to be able to fund some of my interest in those other things like you know reconstructive work and my initial early career passions and facial fractures and trauma and cleft lip and palate surgery and stuff like that so I'm not a saint I mean I like nice stuff and I do think the hedonic treadmill is real we all have to keep ourselves in check I don't know I think reading the newspaper every day trying to appreciate tangible little things as I watch my parents get older and trying to appreciate that little narrow slice of time when my parents and my kids are alive at the same time those things keep me grounded and then they also I'm just so busy like even if I wanted to keep my Botox totally fresh all the time I frankly would not have the time it's always like I always could do like a little bit better well and that's probably a good thing you know what if it's not your top top priority all the time I think the ethos of our podcast is that's probably a good thing you know we're always talking about where that line is my um I have a friend who who runs a restaurant here, um, and he's uh, he's joking about putting a, a drink on the menu called the uh, the Dorian Gray in my honor because I always joke that I get older so that my patients can get younger because as they get younger and younger and more beautiful, I'm like working myself into, you know, my telomeres getting all frazzled. <laughs> well, it's a it's a good cause. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I know you're very busy and we're talking on a Sunday, so I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, just thank you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Hey, everyone. So that was my conversation with Dr. Lara Devgan. I wanted to just pop back up quickly at the end with Patrick to tell him and our listeners about the products that I came away from that interview with. That is the reason we are doing this. We're doing this podcast first and foremost for free stuff. And secondly, to talk about skincare. And thirdly, to praise Gwyneth Paltrow. Accurate. All accurate. Well, so I came away with um, the Dr. Lara Devgan Vitamin C Serum. This retails for $145. So 
not as steep. It's yeah, it's expensive. It's not as expensive as you know the SkinCeuticals, but not cheap. I've only been using it for one morning so far. So we'll have to do a before and after on Instagram, or I'll have to come back in a few weeks and say how it's working over time. But so far, it seems it's it's very similar to like a SkinCeuticals type formula. You know, uh, it's the vitamin C ferulic combo. It has that kind of smoky smell and light orange color. It goes on very nice. Nothing bad to say, but we have to see how it works over time before I can give it a full review. I must say, though, I usually when I try a good product, after, it, after a day, I look at my face and I'm like, oh, I'm starting to see something. Have you started to see any kind of change yet? Positive well, for the positive? I do think my skin is looking pretty good, if I do say so myself. And um, I was, I've been just for the last day, layering that with the hyaluronic acid serum that she talked about in the interview. Now, that product retails for $245. I, yeah, I actually misspoke a bit in the interview because prior to speaking with her, I, I had specifically looked up the vitamin C serum and saw the price point, And I was like, okay, it's kind of in the middle of the most expensive and sort of cheaper brands. But, um, but the more expensive serums like this hyaluronic acid one, the, you know, that's right up there with your SkinCeuticals type products. Um, anyway, I guess there there are more expensive ones, but you catch my drift. So I've been layering it over the vitamin C, which is apparently what she does because I looked it up online. And yeah, it goes on very nicely. It sinks right in. There's nothing like greasy or um, sticky about it. And it's a really nice base for my SPF and makeup. So Again, I think we'll have to see over like, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, what kind of real improvements we see in my skin. But I mean, so far, so good. I feel like, I feel like I'm leveling up. Yeah, fantastic. So my dogs are barking. Just um, let that part just, just They want some Dr. Lara Devgan hyaluronic acid serum. Yeah, well, they'll be getting something very different if they don't shut up in a second. Um. Yeah, so yeah, it's early days, but you are effectively rubbing $500 worth into your face every every day right now. So oh, you're, man. you're living a dream. You've hit the jackpot. That's true. Um, but, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I am invested in this story. Well, I have very high hopes for these products, partly because I also left with a couple of makeup products. So, of course, those I can give a full assessment of right away. Yes. And they're really excellent products. Um, the, there's a mascara that is fantastic. It's not clumpy, which is something that I just, I just assume every mascara is going to be kind of clumpy. In fact, I have a special little metal eyelash comb that separates my individual lashes after I apply mascara because they always stick together and clump. And I didn't have to use it today using this mascara. It also was easy to apply to the lashes at the outer corners of the eye, which I feel like are just always impossible for me to get without smudging. And I put it on 12 hours ago and I don't have raccoon eyes and it hasn't smudged. So this is an A plus for me and it retails for $40. So the mascara I would absolutely buy again. Wow. I mean, buy for a first time since I didn't buy it this time, but you know what I mean? I would pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that is, that's a glowing endorsement. 
I'm also impressed with the lip. She has a lip plumper. It's a lip gloss that is supposed to plump your lips a bit, which retails oh, for fifty dollars. Like venom. venom. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember Lip Venom came out about? Oh God, probably nearly twenty years ago now, and it it, it contained a, a compound that actually hurt your lips make them swell to look like they've been kind of stung by bees oh yeah well i think all these products work that way to some degree they have some sort of irritant in them that gives you a little tingly sensation and just makes them swell slightly i i don't know what it exactly is in this one actually but um but it is like one of those products it's 50 dollars if you buy it and I really like this one. I've used these kinds of things in the past and generally I just find that the effects are extremely short-lived and they can be kind of like like a tacky texture and they can kind of just sit on the lip and rub off very easily. And this uh-huh. one smoothed it it sank in very nicely. The effect lasted a while. I didn't time it, but it had a plumping effect. I mean, it's not incredibly dramatic. Nobody's going to think I got lip filler, but that's fine with me. But it mm-hmm. did make my lips look smooth a little bit noticeably pinker and it has spf in it so you could just wear this without another lip product on top with these makeup products i have very high hopes for the skincare products in the long run so what if i don't know if i get hooked on them i'm gonna it's gonna be really expensive but we'll see how it goes well yeah or you would just have to invite her back for another interview yeah yeah Amazing. Well, I will be watching your face with even more um, scrutiny than I usually do uh, when we actually finally see each other in person, which is going to be in a couple of weeks because we are having a break for Thanksgiving, aren't we? Yes. So our next episode will be out in two weeks. So stay tuned. We will be back. We're taking a week off. And in the meantime, check out our new Instagram page. Lotion in the Basket Pod is our our handle. And we'll put links in the show notes to the Dr. Lara Devgan site and products that I've talked about. Bye. 